Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. In this season of Advent, we find ourselves stuck in the middle of a cosmic story. We're told that God has already come and gone before we ever arrived onto the scene. We're also told that God is coming back, but it feels like that will probably happen after we've left the scene. So here we are, in between the great events of history, the events that shape how we live our life. We keep one eye on Jesus' life, we celebrate his birth and earthly ministry, and we keep the other eye on the future when he will return. But I don't think we spend as much time considering what that day will be like, when the reality we know today will be swept away, and all that's left will be God's love. But if we think of Advent in this way, as the time spent waiting for Jesus to return, we realize that Advent mirrors life itself. In Advent, we eagerly await for Jesus, even though we know he's already been here. In life, we often ask, Jesus, where are you? Even though we know his Holy Spirit dwells within us. In Advent, we look forward to Jesus' birth, even though we know Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. In life, we wait for Jesus' return, even though he never really left us. Last week, Beverly preached a compelling message about holding on to the promise God makes to us. This week, I want to focus on the ways in which that promise is already fulfilled and continues to be fulfilled, even as we enter this season of waiting. Growing up in the evangelical church, the preacher would always ask the congregation to open their Bibles to the sermon passage, And today, I'm asking you to do the same thing. So you'll find a Bible in the pew in front of you. Please open your Bibles to Luke 3. Luke chapter 3. Because there's something I want you to see. There's something going on here that you need to see to understand. So I'll give you a moment more. So today's scripture reading is Luke 3, verses 1 through 6. In the first three and a half verses of the six verses appear like any other text in the Gospels. It's a narrative. It's line to line. Predictable breaks. But halfway through verse 4, you'll notice the format of the text changes. The format changes because Luke is quoting the prophet Isaiah, and prophecies are generally formatted poetically with uneven line breaks. The editors of our Bible draw our attention to this change in voice stylistically through special formatting. I went to seminary so you don't have to, and I'll skip the biblical studies lecture and get to the good part. We live in between those two blocks of text. Our lives start after the historical events of Jesus' ministry, but before the prophetic reality of Jesus' second coming that Isaiah talks about. The history of the church as we know it, every saint that ever lived, can be fit in between the blank space between these two lines of text. 
So what? What does this mean for us? Why does this matter? Well, I believe it matters because it gives us the proper perspective with, with which we can understand our role in history. The scripture tells us three things about God. First, it tells us that history, politics, and presence are inseparable from the gospel. Second, it tells us that the gospel transcends history, politics, and presence. And the final takeaway is that the gospel calls us toward a new history, a new politics, and a new sense of presence. So we'll start with the first. The gospel cannot be separated from history, politics, and presence. Luke begins his gospel by writing a dedication to one most excellent Theophilus. Luke writes, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. And Luke begins his orderly account with the story of Jesus' birth. But by chapter 3, Luke begins to discuss the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He provides an historical exposition. Luke writes, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonidus, and Licinius, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke goes to great lengths to establish the historical context of Jesus' life. In a sense, he's saying, look, this really happened. I can tell you who the president was, I can tell you who the governor was, and even who the mayor was. In another sense, Luke is putting his historical account alongside these chronological milestones. He's framing his history of Jesus' life as yet another event that happened within history. From a political perspective, I believe Luke is introducing Jesus as a foil to secular and religious leaders. He's pitting the lordship of Jesus against the claims to lordship held by the emperor, governors, and kings. It's been said many times, but bears worth repeating, that the original use of the word gospel pertained to edicts and policies set forth by the emperor. The earliest Christians co-opted the word out of rhetorical subversiveness, turning the meaning on its head. And Luke self-consciously follows in this tradition as he cheekily lists the many earthly rulers who claim authority as an introduction to the one who, in fact, holds all authority on earth. If this is all true, then we can conclude that Luke is also saying something about the relationship between presence and the gospel. And what I mean is that if you read this from the perspective of the most excellent Theophilus, you might be waiting for Jesus to be introduced as yet another authority in the list of local rulers. It is the absence of Jesus in this list that is striking. Jesus is overwhelmingly present in the gospel and yet completely absent in Luke's historical exposition. What should we make of this? I think Luke is painting a picture of Jesus as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the one about above every secular and religious authority, while separating him from 
political and religious power entirely. The story of Jesus' life is deeply intertwined with history, politics, and presence, and yet Jesus was not a politician, nor can he be constrained to a single historical event, nor can his presence be limited to any time or place. Instead, Luke's gospel, in this passage specifically, paints a picture of Jesus as someone who lived in history, under the political authorities of his time, and maintained a presence among his people. In this way, the gospel is both entrenched in history, politics, and presence, while also transcending it. When we move from the journalistic introduction Luke provides into the prophetic announcement of Isaiah, we are given a picture of gospel transcendence. Luke quotes Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke marries this prophetic text to his own historical account strategically. Like any good narrator, Luke out lays out the problems before providing the resolution. The political and religious authorities who held power in Jesus' day pose a threat to the success of his ministry. As Luke explains later, it's Pontius Pilate who will give permission for Jesus to be crucified. It's Herod who will do nothing to stop Pilate in acquiescence to the chief priests. What Luke begins with is a cast of characters who will become enemies to Jesus' ministry. Luke's invocation of Isaiah is strategic then because it frames the gospel as a transcendent force in which salvation is not a future promise, it is a present reality. For any of this to make sense, I have to say a word about the original context of Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 40, I won't ask you to turn there, where this quote first appears, we learn that Isaiah is talking about a time when Israel will return to its homeland after spending years in exile. Israel has been sent into exile after being invaded by Babylon and forcibly removed from the land it occupied. The way of the Lord that Israel describes is the path Israel travels back to the promised land. The idea is that God is the one leading Israel, making its path smooth and easy to travel. Isaiah's prophecy serves Luke so well because the two authors are talking about the same thing. God's promise of salvation transcends history, politics, and presence. It doesn't matter whether the oppressive government ruler is Babylonian or Roman. It doesn't matter what year it is or whether where on earth God's people live. God's promise of salvation is always an inbreaking reality that confronts us in the middle of our historical and political context. So the gospel is both rooted in history, politics, and presence, but it also transcends these categories. These categories are necessary for understanding the gospel, but they cannot limit its application. Jesus is both within history and above it. The gospel itself is itself both an historical event and the historical event that makes history comprehensible. We've discussed the significance of Luke's historical exposition and the prophetic future reality that Isaiah writes about. Now we can understand where we live in the middle of those two. 
So my third and final takeaway from this text is that the gospel calls us into new history, new politics, and a new sense of presence. Luke understood this claim of the gospel, because when Luke imagines the future through the eyes of Isaiah's prophecies, he articulates a vision of reality in which rulers are seen as they truly are, subjects of Jesus. He sees the story of the gospel as the means by which God has made every crooked path straight, every rough way smooth. God has humbled those in high positions, making mountains and hills low. He has glorified the humble, filling every valley, raising the lowly. In the ultimate act of history, politics, and presence, God unites humanity in total equality under Jesus Christ eternally. The theologian Stanley Hauerwas sums up this view of the gospel well. He says, Our job as Christians is to ask ourselves, How will I live in such a way that only makes sense if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? Will I live in such a way that only makes sense if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? This is the true test of our history, our politics, and our presence. If my politics deny the gospel, then my politics are wrong. If my life does not witness to the lordship of Christ, then I'm no different from the people Luke names in his exposition. If I limit my presence to only those who agree with me, or only those ideologically pure enough to be associated with, then I have failed to understand the gospel. If I fail to believe that all flesh will see the salvation of God as Isaiah writes, I have failed to be changed by the gospel. So what does this look like on a practical level? Where can we see this playing out in our world today? Before I answer my question, I, I have to acknowledge that it involves a mass shooting, and I want to acknowledge that another school shooting happened this week. And it's important to acknowledge these events as tragedies born of evil. Like the crucifixion of Jesus, just because we can find hope in tragedy, that does not mitigate or stop these types of events from being absolutely tragic. So with that said, I'll answer the question I posed. How might our lives look if we allow the gospel to change our understanding of history, politics, and presence? I think it looks like the families who lost loved ones at the Emanuel AME shooting in Charleston in 2015. Only two days after the murder of nine parishioners, family members appeared at the bond hearing of the shooter. Nadine Collier, daughter of victim Ethel Lance, spoke directly to the shooter, saying, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I'll never get to talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. If God forgives you, I forgive you. This doesn't make sense unless you believe in a God who can transform crucifixion into salvation. This only makes sense if you believe the gospel calls us out of our current system and demands that we imagine new ways of facing tragedy. To be clear, the gospel is not calling us into a new politic in which murderers are owed forgiveness. No. The gospel is calling us into a reality in which forgiveness is possible to begin with. This new understanding of life looks like the author of the hymn, 
it is well with my soul, Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a successful attorney and real estate investor who lost a fortune in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. Around the same time, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Thinking a vacation would do his family some good, he sent his wife and four daughters on a ship to England, planning to join them after he finished some pressing business at home. However, while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was involved in a terrible collision and sunk. More than 200 people lost their lives, including all four of Horatio Stafford's daughters. His wife, Anna, survived the tragedy, and upon arriving in England, she sent a telegram to her husband that began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England, and at one point during his voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had struck the Spafford family, summoned Horatio to tell him that they were now passing over the spot where the shipwreck had occurred. As Horatio thought about his daughters, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind. He wrote them down, and they have since become the hymn that we know today. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Will I live in such a way that only makes sense if Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? That is the only way to realize the promise of Advent. Amen.